Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all and all. He is my strength from day to day. Without Him, I would surely, surely fall. When I am sad to Him, to Him I go. No other one can cheer, cheer me so. Oh, when I am sad, He makes me glad. He is my, He is my friend. I hadn't heard that um, song for many, many years old hymn, until about five years ago, when Mary and I were visiting our daughter in Thailand. Only the voice that's singing it was a, a, a Thai gentleman, and he was singing it in Thai, and he happened to be our daughter's landlord living next door. And I was out putzing around in Deborah's backyard doing chores of one kind or another one morning, and I heard this voice kind of wafting out from the second floor open window that he had opened to let the cool air come in for the morning. And as he sang that song, I just about at that pace, this is a little more gospel soul, you know, this, his was a different style, of course. But as he sang it, I found myself just drawn to, to him. That here was obviously a, a gentleman from a different country, different culture, wherever he happened to be from, uh, in this case, Thailand, who was singing a song that I could connect with from my distant past. And I was trying to find the words and remember the tune and, and kind of stumble along with him best I could. But in the doing of that, there was a, a bond that began to develop, at least I felt, between us. That here was a gentleman from a different place who could worship God in his way, in the, in, in, and I'm worshiping the same God. And there was that special connection. And yeah, he was singing a Western hymn. Uh, I, in some ways, much rather would have him been worshiping in a, some kind of Thai tune of some sort, but I wouldn't have been able to connect with it. But the plus side of that was the bond that I began to felt. And as I reflected on that and tried to sing along, tears started to come to my eyes. And I, and I thought about, you know, this is really what it's all about. From every place all over the planet, all of us coming together to worship the God for all people. And that's what I want us to talk about today. We're here to learn about worshiping the God for all people. And we're going to have you turn, if you would, please, to Mark chapter 11. There are passages today. This is the story of the triumphal entry. <clears throat> and if you would, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to, to 21. And we'll just uh, read out the text here. So I'll just read the text uh, of, this, of this story of the triumphal entry. <clears throat> As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, 
Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went, and they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, Jesus sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus entered the te- Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. That's the story. There's a lot more to the story, obviously, but that's the main thing we want to focus on today. So I want to, first of all, do the setting. I want to give you an idea of where we are in the, in the whole context. So we're going to show you just a picture here of the Wadi Kelt from Jerusalem, uh, from Jericho. And I'm going to step off here a second and use my little pointer to try to point out some geography to you. So this pile of rock here in the foreground is Tel Jericho. It's a part of Tel Jericho. Now, Jericho is a city... Uh, just north of the Dead Sea, uh, down below sea level. And this tell is where the old city resided. Uh, It's a large platform. It's probably several times uh, out to the street, and it's kind of a big tell, big mound of dirt at this point. Uh, And the modern city is reflected here in the background. And Jesus would have left Tell Jericho and worked up this canyon. And this canyon is called Wadi Kelt. It's a very steep sided canyon. There's a trail that goes along the edge of it. And this is called the Ascent of Ajumin. And the, the elevation change here is about 3,300 feet and about a distance of about 15 miles. So we would have wandered along this, this wadi up to uh, the city of Jerusalem. And as he came, uh, as he arrived to the city, I think the next uh, piece I want to show you here, yes, uh, is he came to the cities of Bethany and Bethphage. Uh, 
And what you have here in the, in the foreground is the Mount of Olives. And this, all this white area, this is presently a Jewish cemetery. So Jesus came. He might have come around this hill from the east. The ascent of Adumin is here to the south, I mean to the east, below the picture. He would have come around the hill. Either There's a road here that you can see. Uh, well, that road was still in existence in those days. Who knows? Another road here that goes around, down. And then you have the valley of the Kidron, the Kidron Valley. Come up the side. And then this is the Temple Mount area. The temple proper sits about where it would have sat about where the Dome of the Rock is now. And there's an eastern gate here. That's the, cur- the current one. The one that's actually what he would have gone through is below this. And he would have come in either through this eastern gate or perhaps come around to the south. And there's stone steps here that's still in existence from Jesus' day and entered into either the double or the triple gate up into the colonnade and then, and then into the court of the Gentiles around what was then the temple. So just to give you an idea, so Bethany and Bethphage are off to the east here. They're about a mile away from, from uh, Jerusalem proper, just to give you an idea of the setting as we're talking about it. <clears throat> um, Bethphage means house of figs, and Bethani means the house of dates. And these are places that uh, would have served as overflow housing for the city of Jerusalem because during Passover, people were required basically to come up and to spend the Passover in Jerusalem, to join together in an annual pilgrimage to worship God there. And obviously that would stretch the housing capacity of a city like Jerusalem, and so people would would, uh, stay in the surrounding villages, um, and that was a close enough uh, distance for them to be able to commute in and do things during the day. It was also probably safer for Jesus to stay there because, as we learn later on in the story of of the week here, that on Thursday when Jesus stayed in town, that was the time where the betrayal actually occurred and uh, Jesus was betrayed. In fact, the Garden of Gethsemane, where that occurred, is down here at the base of the Kidron Valley in this general area here. So, that's the setting a bit. And so the story moves along where Jesus tells the people about the uh, cult. And this is in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in those days, when a king went to war, he went on a horse. And when he came in peace, he came on a donkey. And a donkey was seen not as a, as a uh, despicable uh, animal as we are more likely to see it today, but it was seen as, as a respectable uh, creature. And uh, so Jesus comes in symbolizing that he's in coming in uh, as, a peaceful, as a peaceful entry. Now, this entry is reminiscent of one that happened about 150 years earlier when Simon Maccabeus entered the city of Jerusalem. And just a little bit of a context here. Uh, after the, after uh, Alexander the Great had conquered uh, much of the known world at that time and then died prematurely, uh, his kingdom was split up among his generals. And subsequent to that, we had kind of the Greek rule of, of Palestine, area, of, of present-day Israel and surrounding areas. At one point, the Jews rebelled against that, and that rebellion was called the, the Maccabean Revolt. And one of those guys that was part of that was this guy named Simon. And so he enters into uh, Jerusalem after defeating Antiochus, who was one of the Greek rulers. And this Antiochus guy was a pretty bad dude. Uh, he had uh, wanted to impose Greek culture on the Jews, and he was going through and obliterating Jewish practices, persecuting Jews, murdering them in their homes, slaughtered a pig on the altar 
at the, in, in, at the temple and tried to convert the temple into a, a place to worship the Greek god Zeus. Okay, so he was really bad, all right? And the Jews were not real happy about this and finally got together and had this rebellion. And so Simon uh, Maccabeus comes in to uh, demonstrate that um, conquering. And they only rule for a short period of time. But if you can think about this for a minute, our civil war in America was about 150 years ago. All right? We still have in our day today vestiges of the whole civil war thing still, in fact, affecting our culture. We deal with the whole racism issue, civil rights, justice, all these kinds of issues are still there. They're still, that's still part of our cultural background. We can still remember that. And it still affects us today. So 150 years back, this Maccabean revolt and Simon Maccabeus's entry had, had occurred. Along come the Romans, shortly after the Maccabees had uh, pushed out the Greeks, and they take over and subjugate the Jews, only they do it a little differently. They're more willing to allow the Jews to have their, their religious practices. And that works fine for some people. The guys like the Pharisees say, you know, that's okay. As long as you can rule the country, we won't make any waves, you know, we'll be nice. Just let us practice our religious faith. And so those, those folks were a certain party called the Pharisees. There were Hellenists who said, hey, it doesn't matter. We'll just go with the culture. We'll just kind of give up our faith. We'll just, we'll, we'll just do whatever worship you want us to do. We're fine. But there were others called the Zealots that wanted to throw off the Roman yoke. They wanted nothing to do with this. They wanted, they wanted Jewish independence, period. And so that's in the background a little bit as well. And you find these various factions in the cultural background as this story is going on. Okay, so now, now we start the actual procession. You find Jesus coming in, the people throwing their, their cloaks on the ground and bringing the palm branches, and there's this big demonstration. Now, there's, what they're shouting is what we're saying, Hosanna. In, in the Hebrew, it's Hoshiatna. And it means literally, save now. Now, we use that as an expression of worship. That's part of what we just sang a few, mo- few moments ago, right? Okay. But in this context, it com- has more the ring of a public demonstration. It's like, what do we want? Freedom. When do we want it? Now. Okay. You've heard that? Okay. That's what's going on. That's, that's more the, it's more, a, a, more of a zealot cry for independence. They want to be freed of this. The palm branches that were very likely used to wave or put on the ground that were cut from the fields nearby, those palm branches are actually a symbol of Jewish nationalism. During the brief time between uh, when, the, when the Maccabees ruled, they, the Jews were, cut, were coin, doing their own coins. And on those Jewish coins was the palm branch. And that was a symbol of their independence. It's like there's a bunch of... Uh, uh, you know, Tea Party activists or something, <laughs> you know, that, are, that have got this party going on, this, this thing. What do we want? Freedom. What do we want it now? And they're waving eagle feathers because eagle for us is a symbol of our American nationalism. Can, can you picture something like that? So that's more the climate that's going on here. Um, and so Jesus enters Jerusalem. And I want to show you another slide here of what this may have looked like. Uh, this is a model of uh, a scale model of the temple area. It's located at the Holy Land Hotel in western, modern western, Jerus- western Jerusalem nowadays. And it covers about an acre or so in the hotel grounds in the back. You can actually tour this. Mary and I have been here a couple of times. And this is a view from the northeast. So this is the northeast corner, the west off to here, and then that magnificent gate that I mentioned to you earlier that Jesus may have come in, the eastern gate. The, t- the temple proper here, and this area here, 
It's called the Court of the Gentiles. So remember that because we're going to talk about the Court of the Gentiles. And then this colonnade goes around the edge here. This is likely where a lot of the money changers and the, the uh, stock transactions were going on. I don't mean paper stock. I mean moo, okay, animal stock, okay? Um, and then you have the Court of the Women, and then the, the priests could enter and then into the Holy of Holies. So this is kind of the basic layout. Jesus may well have come in through this, this gate here into the temple area or from around in the back on the south side. Uh, so remember this colonnade and this location here. Now, western Jerusalem was kind of the high-rent district in the, in, the, in the era. That's where all the rich people lived. And when you tour there nowadays, you can go down and you can see some of the places where they had these really magnificent friezes and colors. They, they had a pretty high-class neighborhood um, over in those days. But to the east, you find down on this, which we saw the Mount of Olives is over here, okay? Uh, a lot of transport would happen because this was a nice little shortcut. So they could go from the east side through the temple area to, to uh, sell stuff over here and back and forth. So a lot of going back and forth in terms of commerce. It's a shortcut around this hill because this sits up on a hill. And you know, that way you don't have to go down in the valley, around the edge, back up again. So you can picture that, that Jesus comes in and he uh, kind of cases the place, walks around, and then goes out the next day. Okay, and then the next day we have the story of the cursing of the fig tree. So what happens there? We can move along, Linda. Thank you. Here we go. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention this location. <laughs> Here we go. Um, so here's the, I want you to uh, keep in mind, this is the corner of the, of the Temple Mount area. This is the southwest corner. Here's the Mount of Olives at sunset. The ascent of Adjumin coming up from Jericho back here. So he's come up the hill. He's around here. He goes down. goes into the temple area to our left and uh, then back out the sit to Bethany overnight. So remember this area here, and this Al-Aqsa Mosque right here is where the colonnade uh, would have been. In just a moment, a little bit later on, we're going to be standing at the base of this, and I want you to, we'll talk about some stuff there. Okay, thanks. Um, so now we're, we're, um, Jesus has looked things over. He is on his way back out again, and then comes back the next morning, and as they were, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance that fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Okay, so Jesus curses this fig tree. Now, one of the natural questions that come up with, was Jesus being petulant here? I mean, was he just plain ticked off because he was hungry and couldn't get food? I mean, is it like a, a coffee addict who goes to, goes to Starbucks expecting to get their whatever they normally get on a Sunday or whenever they, you know? And, and Starbucks says, we don't sell coffee. I mean, all these signs and all this, we don't do coffee. I don't know why you're coming here for coffee, you know? And they're saying, oh, you know, and, and the coffee, coffee addict is dying and starts getting really bent out of shape about it and wants to call down the wrath of heaven on Starbucks for pretending to be a coffee shop that they're not actually doing. You know, and they're just, is that what Jesus was doing? Is he just having a, a fit? Um, natural question. In fact, some people think that Jesus cursed the fig tree just to show how much God hates figs. <laughs> I kind of like them myself, but... Um, <clears throat> Some even suggest that it's unworthy of Jesus, this whole story, and doesn't even belong in our Bibles. I mean, let's just cut it out, you know. Um, but there's no textual support for that. We've got to deal with this, the story as it sits. 
And my take on it, and there's a lot of scholars that will buy that, that support this idea, is that this is truly an enacted parable. Or this is a parable that gets acted out. Lots of parables get told. This one gets demonstrated. That's what's going on. Jesus is acting it out. And there's a particular structure to the story. You'll find as we go along here that the cursing of the fig tree and then the cleansing of the temple and then the cursing of the fig tree story is completed. So we have what we call an A, B, A, or from your perspective, an A, B, A, what do you like? Okay, uh, package about this whole story. So Jesus is demonstrating a truth and then he's telling a truth in, the, in this whole context. So let's look at some of the details here. Um, did Jesus have a right to expect figs on this tree? I mean, was it reasonable that Jesus would expect it? And the answer is yes. Uh, R.K. Harrison's article in the International Standard Bible uh, Encyclopedia says that various kinds of figs grew in this area, and one is called tax. And tax is an early fig, uh, and it's expected if the tree is in leaf, and if it's not there, it'll probably, it will be a barren season when the full uh, season comes in later on. So this is like an indicator. The leaves should be there. If the leaves are there, there ought to be these small little fruit showing up because if they're not, then the whole tree is going to be barren that season. It's, it's not going to be happening. Um, so it's reasonable that he would expect that. And Jesus curses that tree because much like Israel, it has the show of fruitfulness without the substance. That's the show of fruitfulness without the substance. It's kind of like what Texans say when they talk about a braggart. He's all hat and no cattle. Think about it. <clears throat> so there's that, there's that demonstration that you'd expect. And so Jesus is warning his people that just like this fig tree, their doom is coming. This is what's going to happen to you. In fact, a little later on in Mark chapter 13... Jesus is leaving the temple, and one of his disciples says to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Jesus sees what's going to happen. I want to show you a little bit of what this looks like. I mentioned to you a few moments ago about the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, which is now right here and we are at the base of it, these huge blocks are part of the Herodian foundation. This is put in by Herod. And this is because the Temple Mount area was, was a mountain, and he wanted a larger building platform, so he built the foundation up of these large stones like that, filled it in, and then built the temple and the colonnade and all that stuff on top of this area. It's kind of like just up the street here on Walnut. As you drive along, you know, the Walnut has this slope that was there, and they've come along and graded that off, and then they put in big rocks to sort of backfill against so they can make a, plant, a foundation for the office buildings that are starting to go up over here. Okay? That's kind of what this is, you know, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and, and so there's these big stones, and now right on top is where the Ottoman wall was built. It's under the Ottoman Turks years, uh, years back. And this, is, this was all like cleaned off and flattened out, but this has been built up. It's about 50 feet from here to the top of this wall when you stand there. Mary and I, got to, we were there in 97 and stood right here uh, just after they had excavated this area. This street is the street of, of Jesus' day. This is the Herodian street. It's, it's really moving to stand there. And to envision 
what Jesus was talking about. He could see it. These are stones that they have. There were, these stones where they're piled up like this when we were there were still piled all the way along here. And these are some of the stones that uh, were tumbled, pushed off the wall up above when the, when the Romans uh, sacked Jerusalem in AD 70. And here's a close-up view of that. You look close, see how large those stones are. You see, Jesus could see this. He could see this coming about 40 years up the road. He wept over Jerusalem. We read um, or later on in Luke, in Luke, we read that Jesus wept over the city. He could see what was happening. He was warning them of what was about to happen because they had the trappings of religion with, without the substance, without the reality. And so Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple. And let's look at the, another slide of this. Uh, the corner I just showed you was right here, and the Herodian Street is right here, and all the stones are right on this area here. So here's the corner. And so Jesus enters in probably either from the south, as we said earlier, on these stairs, or from the east in this gate. And he comes into the temple area, which if you can imagine the colonnade being around the edge, like we showed you earlier, the court of the Gentiles, now where this green area is, and the temples being sitting around where the, temple, where the Dome of the Rock sits presently. Mount of Olives over here, Garden of Gethsemane down in here, Kidron Valley here, West Jerusalem here. For those of you, you know, this is the western wall that you often see on TV. Okay? Just to give you the picture. And then taking it in closer again, uh, so here's the Court of the Gentiles. We're viewing it now from the northeast corner, and this is the Court of the Gentiles where all this uh, commerce was going on. So when Jesus entered that temple area, the smell of the animals would have been entering his nostrils. He would have heard noise from the money changers' table. Because um, here was the setup. People who were, they were required to come to Jerusalem on an annual basis, and when they came, they made their Passover sacrifices. And these Passover sacrifices had to be certified as being kosher or clean or pure or you know, right enough to be sacrificed to God. But if you're coming from a long way, it's tough to drive your, your, your ox or your sheep or your goat or, or even carry your turtle doves <laughs> that long a distance. And if you got there, they had to pass inspection. And so the priest quite often would... Uh, Check these out and say, oh, not, not kosher, not kosher. And you'd have, you have to buy one of ours. So you got a racket going, okay? It's kind of like when you go to the airport and, and you're going to go through security, all right? And you want get to get a water bottle and it costs you, you know, a buck thirty-nine outside and you go inside, suddenly it's $4.25, okay? There's a deal going on here, okay? You cannot, they, they've got you. Uh, and that's kind of what's happening here. And furthermore, uh, the, the temple tax had to be paid, and every male had to pay a half-shekel tax, all right? And a, a shekel was a, was a Jewish uh, silver coin of certain purity. And they didn't really have many of those kinds of coins running around those days because it was no longer a Jewish state, per se. The closest coin they had to it was a coin uh, made from entire, you know, Sidon entire, which is up on the Lebanese coast to the northwest, and it's called the Tyrian shekel. And so that money... Uh, you could bring in your Roman coins as, as somebody who's going to pay the tax, but you had to get that money changed into the Tyrian shekel because it was of the proper uh, silver content, shall we say. Well, again, another racket because now we got you. You've got to pay in this particular coinage, and so we will exact a price for making that money change. So if you've ever traveled overseas and you want to exchange your money when you go through the airport before you get into the country, you're going to pay a fee for that. Okay, it's going to cost you, and that's kind of what's going on here. So there was quite a racket going on. 
And uh, Jesus could see that that was happening. So the, the poor people, especially, are, are, being, are being ripped off of their opportunity to come and really worship God freely. And that whole court of the Gentiles, instead of being a place where all peoples could come together and worship God widely, was now being turned into a place where all these rip-offs were going on. Well, that righteously galls Jesus, and he wants a clean house because he is zealous for the worship of his Father, as well he ought to be. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit moment, just a moment later. So Jesus uh, appears there in fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1 to 2. See, I will send my messenger who prepared the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Literally, Jesus is going to clean house because he believes that and wants to make clear that his house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the point. And this is a quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. So Jesus frees up the place where Gentiles could come and pray and connect with God. And that was essential to God's overall plan since the beginning of creation to show his glory to all people. That's what this is about. His overall plan is found in Ephesians 1, 4 to 6a, which says, For he chose us, us, that's us Gentiles, all peoples. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. This has been God's plan since before this all started. This is no second plan. This is God's plan from the beginning. To be, and we are chosen from the, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what it's about, to the praise of his glorious grace. All of us are part of this grand plan that God has in mind to praise his glorious grace. How did that all get started? What is Israel's role in that mission? We find that in Genesis 12. This is the beginning of the Jewish nation, the beginning of Israel. This is the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. He's speaking to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's a statement of the gospel right there for all peoples back at the beginning of God's calling of Abraham and the beginning of the Israeli people. Notice here, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All people. That's Israel's mission, to be a blessing to all people. The court of the Gentiles is a means to that blessing, and they were thwarting that, that, that purpose because that's what God was about. Israel had all the trappings of spiritual success, but it was thwarting God. It was thwarting its God-given purpose. Jesus was holding Israel to account to that purpose for which they'd been called. And can you capture the vision here? This is, this is all people. I mean, we're talking Ugandans. We're talking Brazilians. We're talking Mongolians. We're talking Shan, Thai, Yadav, on and on and on. We're talking all these peoples from all over the planet that God is calling to himself to gather in spontaneous worship of God. 
And that little experience I had five years ago in Thailand, when I heard our daughter's landlord sing a hymn, is only just a small taste of what's yet to be had. Some of you have been to, uh, on our short-term mission trips, and you have been a part of some of these kinds of things. We've had the privilege of worshiping with other peoples. You know what we're talking about here. It's the highest good possible to be engaged in the worship of God. Consider this from Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. Hey, we're all seeking happiness, right? There's where, it, there's where it's found. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures evermore. The highest good is to express the incredible joy of being in God's presence, to see perfect beauty, truth, holiness, mercy, love, all of God's magnificent qualities, to have everyone with you exuberantly sharing that joy. That's what it's about. And, and it is expressing the excellency of something is something we do naturally. It, it completes our joy in it. It's part of what we do. When we see something cool, we want to shout about it. We want to share it. Consider this from C.S. Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms. And I've, I've had it written out here so that you can follow along because we're talking, you know, a British style of writing, so follow carefully, okay? C.S. Lewis writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with because the perfect hearer died a year ago. Uh, this is so even when our expressions are inadequate, as of course they usually are. But how if one could really and fully praise even such things to perfection? Utterly get out in poetry or music or paint the upsurge of appreciation which almost bursts you. Then indeed the object would be fully appreciated and our delight would have attained perfect development. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. If it were possible for a created soul fully, I, I mean up to the full measure conceivable by a finite being, fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. Follow that? I'll, I'll help you out here in a minute. The Scottish Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. You're starting to get it. Okay, let me give another illustration of this. Okay. Not long ago, the Beavers were playing the mighty Trojans in football. And the Trojans were supposed to trounce the Beavers. And we're in the stands watching this game. And we can't believe what we're seeing. 
halftime, the Beavers are up 21 zip. They're, we're, we're killing them. All right? We are killing them. We can't believe what we're seeing. Halftime comes. I've got to pull my cell phone out and call my wife and tell her, honey, you can't believe what I'm watching here. So I pull out my cell phone and I'm punching in and I can't get a line out. I'm frustrated. I want to call and tell her. Okay. And so I keep punching. I can't get a line out. Can't get a line out. And I look around me. Everybody else is doing the same thing. There's 45,000 people trying to call somebody and tell them, you won't believe what's going on. Turn your TV on. Get the radio on. You've got you to see this. Okay. Blows everybody away. Something about us just naturally, when we see something way cool, we've got to tell somebody. We can't hold it back. And we're frustrated if we can't do it. I mean... We've, we jammed all the cell phone towers around Research Stadium that day. Or, or another, another story. Some of you know the story of Susanna Boyle. Okay, she's the rather dowdy Scottish choir member uh, that appeared on the British version of American Idol not long ago. And she was being pre-interviewed, you know, and they were looking at her kind of skeptical. You, you're kind of a nothing, ugly, homely person. You know, what can you possibly offer here? Kind of the attitude on the part of the judges. And so she starts to sing uh, the opening lines from I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables, and it blew people's doors off. They could not believe what they were seeing. I mean, I watched that the other day just in preparation for this message. I'm, I still tear up watching it, okay? That thing had over half a million hits on YouTube, bang. People, when they saw that, had to tell somebody, you won't believe what this is. The quality and just the way she carried herself, the demonstration of her character against the, the hostility, uh, the judgmentalism of the crowd around her. Is that starting to make more sense? You see, how we just naturally and spontaneously express our praise and joy when we see something stupendous. We can't hold it in. And we want to quash anything that would hinder or keep the stain on that expression. We, want to, we, we buck against it. We don't like that. So can we imagine taking that sentiment that we had at an at a OSU Beaver game against the Trojans, or that we saw when Susanna Boyle, or Susan Boyle had this uh, appearance, can we take that sentiment, the, the natural expression of that joy that fulfills the joy itself, can you take that and magnify it a bazillion times? However many that is. Maybe then we can begin to grasp that Jesus rightly opposes as evil anything that blocks this tremendously good and right expression. And we begin to understand that he gave himself fully and sacrificially for the purpose of bringing all people to worship God forever. This stuff is really hard to get across. <laughs> and I just feel like a guy who's on the edge of it trying to describe it. But it is powerful if you can get a hold of the magnificence of our God and the joy that's found in expressing that, just like we have in any other stupendous thing that we would see. You see, Jesus deeply desires to welcome all people into his presence. As I said earlier, he wept over Jerusalem. He wanted to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks, but they refused. And he could see the tragic consequences of that refusal and wanted to save them from it. This blessing of entering his presence comes by faith. We read this in Galatians chapter 3. Consider Abraham. Here's our man again. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance 
to Abraham, Genesis 12 here, all nations will be blessed through you. And so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the Bible tells us that we enter into God's presence, not by any work of righteousness that we may have done, but according to his mercy. We can never attain on our own the perfection that is required to be in the presence of a holy God. But we can be forgiven. We give up our efforts to gain his presence by our own efforts, and we accept his offer of mercy. We simply trust him. We trust him that he means it when he accepts us as we are because we're trusting in him and not in ourselves. When we do that, we cannot but help, help but express the joy that comes from giving ourselves spontaneously to spreading that joy to all people. We naturally want to tell others. That's the beauty of the gospel, and that's the nature of our God. So I'd like to offer some invitations to you today in reflection on this passage. Are you someone today who needs to take God at his word to give up your own efforts, to trust him, to welcome you by faith into his presence? Some of us are trying, but we're not trusting. What does it mean to completely trust God to take care of entering you into his presence? Or do you need to give yourself more completely to his purpose of welcoming all people into his presence? Do you need to be someone who is praying for your neighbors more? Or for friends or family members or co-workers, people that you bump into around town? Do you need to perhaps cut back on your lifestyle? You know, I don't really need to buy that. I don't need to do that. I can step out and trust God about things more in terms of my personal lifestyle, dedicate more of my financial resources, more of my time and energy to furthering this purpose because that's what it's about. It's not about happiness as I define it. It's about joy as God invites us to experience. Maybe we need to ask ourselves as a congregation, is there more we need to do to fulfill God's purpose for us? We don't want to be a people who have the trappings of religion without the substance. We want to be sure that we're continuing to grow and develop in these areas. So those are a few points of invitation I want to invite you to consider. Uh, We're going to have prayer just now. A worship team will be coming up and uh, leading in in a closing song. But would you just be reflecting on those thoughts as I lead us in prayer? Father God, we just thank you so much that you are a God who invites us into your presence, invites us to experience the joy of being in relationship with you. Lord, we just pray that if there's anyone here today that needs to make that decision to step into faith with you, that you would so draw them. If there's anyone here today who needs to attend to an area of their life where they've been putting you second place, whether it's with their time and energy or financial resources or wherever that may be, that you would talk to them today, Lord, and help them to make fresh commitments to dedicate themselves more fully and completely to this grand purpose of promoting you as the God of all peoples. Lord, cause us as a congregation to understand more and more what it means and to take the actions that dedicate ourselves more and more fully, completely to this purpose for which you've created us and called us. And for this, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.